Let's pray together. Holy Father, give thanks uh, that in your um, magnificent generosity and in the way in which you love, which is always outturned, and Holy Trinity, which Father, Son, and Spirit, your love is always outgoing, that you have wished to make all things to draw a multitude to enjoy the way in which you, Father, love the Son and the way in which you, Son, love the Father and the communion of the Spirit. We bless your name and we ask you to help us to think well about what it means to live in a world uh, that throbs with the reality of your love, the reality of your kindness and generosity, uh, and how we are to see Jesus Christ in all things and all things in Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, we pray. Be near to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you guys, let's talk now about the reality of, or reality in Christ as it pertains to a knowledge of the world, what it looks like to know the world in Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, you see in our notes, I want to ask this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Lots of people would say that's the most basic question you could ever ask. Why is there something? And, if, you know, for, for us, we might say, why is there something um, other than the triune existence and life of God? Why, why on earth did God create? And so um, the book that you guys are, are reading hopefully getting started on it, Delighting in the Trinity, right off the bat, has wonderful things to say about just that. First of all, you know, what was God doing before God created? Was God lonely? Right? Does God create to, to dispel loneliness? Um, does God need servants? All of these things. What Reeves gets, Reeves gets at really wonderfully is what God was doing uh, always and ever is delighting in his triune existence. And so God's love is never narcissistic. It's turned out toward the other, the Father, the unbegotten is the one who forever loves the Son, his begotten one, in the communion of the Spirit. The Son, the eternally loved, is the one who, in that reciprocity of adoration for his Father, is loving in the life and communion of the Spirit, who is the bond of love between Father and Son. And so why does God create? Because God's love is effulgent and outgoing, right? And it explodes forth in the making of all things. Let us make so that God can share the life of love that is his triune existence. It's awesome. So for instance, um, we want to have a really deeply Trinitarian understanding of creation. It means a lot, right? Right alongside of that, we want to have a really deeply understanding of, uh, Trinitarian understanding of love. If God's not triune, well, we might say this, God is love because he's Trinity. If God's not Trinity, what does love look like? If God's an eternal, solitary singularity, what does, what does, what does the kind of love that is natural and native to God look like? It's love that's turned in on the self, right? God was, God was forever um, adoring himself, not in an outward turned, a, a self-giving love, but in a 
a love that's turned in upon the self. Does that make sense to you guys? We're talking about apples and oranges here, something so different. What, by the way, this is one of the things Reeves talks about, what was Allah doing before he created? And why did he create? God doesn't create because he wants to be a father. That's what procreation's like. Um, God creates because he is a father. And God creates to draw many sons and daughters into the sphere of his beloved son, right? So right off the bat, why is there something rather than nothing? I give you a couple quotes here. They're really fun to think about. Lewis from Mere Christianity, all sorts of people, he says, are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning or much different meaning, at least we could say, unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, as it was, a singularity, then before the world was made, he was not love. Or what we might say, we, we could tweak Lewis a little bit, we'd say his love is categorically something else than God's triune love. It's funda God is fundamentally self-centered. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ, says Reeves, God the Son is the logic of creation. That's what we've been talking about. He's the logic of God. He's the logic of humanity. All things were made by him, through him, for him. He's the blueprint of creation. He's the one eternally loved by the Father. Therefore, creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of the love that is the triune God of the gospel burst forth, brimmed out, the father so delighted in his son that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn of many sons. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because the effulgent self-giving of, of God bursts forth, right, in, in, in joy, the way Lewis does it in uh, Narnia is, because Aslan sings forth creation, right? It's a song of God. He sings it forth in the self-giving generosity and love of God to bring many people into the sphere so that all of creation throbs with the love of God. And it's specific to Jesus Christ. God created the world, says Jonathan Edwards, for his son. That's what Paul says in Colossians. The same thing he says, God created the world for his son that he might prepare a spouse, a bride for him to bestow his love upon so that the mutual joys between the bride and the bridegroom are the end, the goal, the aim of creation. That's why the world exists. What does that mean? We can't talk about the creation of the world without talking about the gospel. <laughs> can't talk about the creation of the world without talking about the triune beauty and love of God that is impressed upon the world. How we come to see and discern that, we'll get at, but that's right off the bat. We want to we want to most definitely say that. Again, let me go back to Bertrand Russell. <laughs> the world is a random collocution of atoms. Why does, why does something exist rather than nothing? Who knows? It's utterly without intentionality or prescience. There's no, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's certainly no intentionality and artistry, and there's no love impressed upon all that is. That is so barren, right? It's so, it's so abysmal. 
This is the gospel. The world was made so that Jesus Christ could be born. Let's talk about that a little bit. The world was made so that Jesus Christ could be born. If Jesus Christ is the reason for the world, all things were made by him and through him and for him. Why does the world exist? For Jesus Christ. Where is it moving and how is it summed up? In Jesus Christ. The world was made so that Jesus Christ can be born. Let's, let's, let's talk through that a little bit because I don't think that that's something that comes out a lot in uh, the church's teaching. We speak rightly of the world only by speaking rightly of Jesus Christ. So we're never trying to, we're never trying to say how is, and this is often what we do, by the way, how is Jesus relative to the world? How is he relevant to the world? That question goes quite the other way around, right? We speak rightly of the world only by speaking rightly of Jesus Christ and that the whole of creation has no reality of its own. And by what I mean, what I mean by that is that the world has no independent existence, no independent meaning, no independent purpose, no independent aim. And by the way, no independent intelligibility apart from the one Christ reality. Jesus Christ comes to not only reveal God to us, not only reveal us to us, but to reveal the entire cosmos to us. Does that make sense? To say it another way, the gospel isn't, you know, how to, how, just so how, how we can get right with God as individuals. The gospel speaks to the whole reason that the world exists and where the world's going. Creation exists because of Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ, Paul says. Reality in Christ thus entails redemption, and yet it extends beyond redemption to the reason that creation exists in the first place, to the reason why there's something, and in fact, all things, rather than no thing at all. This is what we want to grasp right off the bat. The reason for the incarnation isn't um, a mere emergency measure, right? It's not a mere divine counteraction to sin and brokenness and fallenness. It has everything to do with that. But there's something more going on there. It's not the case that God created all things because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ with the intent that Christ would never be born or with the intent that the second person of the Trinity would never be known at all. Does that make sense? With the intent that the eternal word would never become the incarnate word. If we're, not, if we're not clear on that, what we'll tend to do is say that the world has a logic apart from Jesus Christ, that somehow he comes and makes clear or somehow makes intelligible, but he's not that. He's, some, he's somehow an emergent, only an emergency measure rather than the very ground and interpretive context for the world. The incarnate word reveals the eternal trinity. That's what we've been talking about, right? The incarnate word, word reveals the eternal trinity that God's name is and has ever been Father, Son, and Spirit. Would we know that apart from Jesus Christ? He reveals that to us. The incarnate word reveals the true measure of humanity, that our dignity and our nobility is rooted in divine image bearing. And it always has been patterned after the Son. We were made 
because of Jesus, because of the Son, through the Son, for the Son, to be summed up in the Son, to be brought to the fullness of human telos in the Son. And the incarnate Word reveals the true meaning of the world, that from the dawn of creation, the origin of the world and the aim of the world is Jesus Christ. All things were made through him. He is preeminent in all things. All things hold together in him, right? So what we're getting at there is, why is there a universe rather than an infinitely atomized pluriverse or a multiverse? Why is there a universe? Because all things hold together in Jesus Christ, right? As soon as, by the way, as soon as that becomes um, not on the four of us, at least in our own in interpretation, what does the world become? Fractured and broken, it becomes a multiverse. There's no intelligibility to it. It has no narrative and no ultimate meaning or purpose. Then we're tempted to be like Nietzsche, right? Well, be an Ubermensch and try to, try to foist purpose and meaning on the world. It's not inherent to it. Try to foist your own on there. To the extent we do that, we lose the world. We don't gain it, we lose it. The world was made so Christ could be born so that he, being Alpha and Omega, might be manifest to us as the one who not only has called forth the cosmos, but who consummates it in himself, right? Brings it to its fullness. Now, was Jesus Christ the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? Yes, absolutely. What that doesn't mean is that the reason for the incarnation is simply sin and evil. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean, and what it does show us, is that the Lord who made all things by, by him and through him and for him and loves his creation is loath to let his creation go in brokenness, right? If the world is broken, if we've broken the world, more to the point, and broken ourselves, God loves us so much and is so committed to his creation that it'll, it'll call forth the breaking of Jesus Christ's body. So that, so that the breaking of the world is never going to be an impediment to him coming among us as one of us. But God made the world so that he could come among us as one of us in Christ Jesus. Again, another really fun way to think about that is the way Paul talks about um, Christ in the church in Ephesians 5. And he says, this is the mystery. It's, it's embedded in creation, Genesis 2. It's, it's embedded right there, that mystery that, that is, you know, progressively being revealed and will be brought to its fullness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. That's not, that's not post-Genesis 3. It's before Genesis 3. What, what is God's intent for the world to come among us in Jesus Christ? Because the world was made for Jesus Christ. Do you guys want to say anything about that? What I'm trying to do as I teach you in these things is I'm trying to get at some of, the, some of the ways that we try to fit Jesus Christ into a world that we don't think he's the logos of, right? Like there's an extant humanity, he comes among us, he conforms to us, not us to him. The, the world exists, God made the world, then, then the world sinned, so Jesus Christ performs an emergency measure on the world. But he's not the logos of it, he is. Uh, just a fundamental question. If 
as, as you've been describing the significance of Jesus as the ultimate Imago Dei and, um, and now as an expression of the Trinity, and, and it's just so significant that Christ <laughs> came, why the delay? Is there a significance to the long wait, the, the wait for, for Christ to come? Uh, is there a significance to the amount of time? Um, if, if it means so much for us to have him as someone to imitate, um, and as someone to consummate creation, why did we have to wait so long? I wish I had an answer. <laughs> I wish I did, right? So, but when we're talking about living forward and understanding backward, let's apply it like this. Why we're talking about living forward and understanding backward, it's not that there's no knowledge, right? It's not that there's no knowledge of what it means to be human until Christ. It means that the fullness of that knowledge comes. It's, we're anticipating, we're waiting, right? Um, same with the world. Um, it's not as though um, um, our, you know, ancient patriarch and matriarch um, predecessors in the faith, right? Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Miriam, didn't have a sense of what the world is as God and God the creator of it. It's that. They didn't know this. All things were made by him, right? And nothing that is was made apart from him. So the issue, maybe we could say it like this, Lydia. Waiting is so important to the life of faith, isn't it? It's so, so we tend to think that it's, an, that it's an impediment. I do, I'll bet you guys do too, especially the more and more we live in an instantaneous type of culture. There's something that's so important about it, right? And so formative. So in, an, in a, quite another sense, we too, we're waiting, right? Creation now, Paul tells us, is groaning. It declares the glory, the glory of God, Psalm 19, Romans 8. It's groaning. It's telling another story, not a contradictory one, but a parallel one. It's groaning with the tragedy of human fallenness, fallenness and all of us together are groaning and we're waiting. It's gonna make me cry just thinking about it. We're waiting. Um, <clears throat> why? Um, so we can break forth with a shout of adulation and joy and the fulfilling of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ and learn how to trust and seek. That's the best I got for you, or at least all we can say now. But, it, but it, are you frustrated by that? <laughs> by the way, hear the Psalms. Like, hear the way the people of God talk. How long, O oh Lord, right? One of the things that tells us is like, what will God hear from us? Will God hear, oh, I'm so sick of this, right? It's hard, I'm, 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 I too with creation am groaning. How long? When will it be that you fulfill these things? Yeah, yeah. Like um, also you could, to, to answer Lydia's question, um, if I can propose one, one thought as well to add to what you've said, uh, it could actually speak to Lydia's own concern about the Jewishness of Jesus and the yeah. fact that he, God waits is because Jesus comes from a people. And it's important that God establish a story with a people before Jesus Christ comes and, and enters the world among and from those people, mm. the people of Israel. And so it's because it's so important that 
he's Jewish, that God waits, as opposed to God just appearing among us. I don't even know what it would look like for a God man to appear among us abstracted from a particular culture. Um, You know, it's the fact that Jesus spoke Aramaic. It's the fact that he was brown. It was the fact he comes from a a specific context and that speaks to his embodiedness, his humanness. I think that's great. And so what we're getting at too with that is God desires a people of the truth. There's a difference between communicating truths and becoming a people of the truth, right? So um, God wishes to make a people of the truth that that requires a death and a resurrection. this seems to, this, this is the way God works with Israel. It's the way he's working with us. By the way, it's the way he works with the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the template of life in Christ. He's not born glorified, right? He um, grows and he suffers. And you know, like the book of Hebrews says, right? In the days of his flesh, he cries out, right? And all the while, he's learning obedience, not moving from disobedience to obedience, but, but in this paradigm, he's learning to entrust himself to his father all the way to Gethsemane and Golgotha. And he's learning how to say, Abba, in Gethsemane, right? Oh my goodness. So I think that, you know, all of these things, it tells us a little, about, a little bit about um, the way in which God is with us calling forth some things and wanting to put to death some things in us too. Let's talk about this. Seeing then and recognizing the world in Jesus Christ, if all things were made by him and through him and for him, what we're never doing is saying, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's see the world and let's try to figure out how he fits into it. It's quite, quite different than that. Let's see how the world um, has its, its blessedness, its value, its origin, its aim, and its intelligibility in him. The entire cosmos is from the Father through the Son. That's 1 Corinthians 8. He is the agent, the heir of all things, so that we inhabit this ordered universe, not a jumbled multiverse, as I was saying. And because all created existence is ground in Jesus, grounded in Jesus Christ, the eternal uncreated logic, logos, he is that logic of creation. He's that one. The logic of God is impressed upon um, the creation, and we come to learn the creation in him. He unites in himself, creator and creation, eternity and time, heaven and earth, And what he does there is he renders the universe integral and intelligible and gives it its full and final and its concrete definitive disclosure in himself. We come to know what the world is and what the world means in Jesus Christ. It's cosmic, cosmic uh, implements, uh, cosmic um, um, realities being brought to bear here through the gospel. So our Lord doesn't reveal many realities because we don't live in a pluriverse. He doesn't reveal one reality with all kinds of different avenues of access to it because there's one mediator between God and man. So what we're getting at here is any outlook that fails 
to see and savor Jesus Christ, all things in him and him in all things, is in a truly Christian outlook. It's one of the implements of the gospel that he comes to, to make alive the world to us in himself. If we try to get meaning from the world or if we try to take the world and pull it apart from him, abstract it from him, what happens is it immediately loses its intelligibility, lacks intelligibility. It becomes at odds with reality. Um, does that make sense to you guys? It's getting at what Bonhoeffer was saying earlier and that you know, we talked last time I was here. Bonhoeffer says there's one Christ reality the reality of God embedded in the reality of the world so that in order to be truly Christian, we're going to be worldly in this way. We're not going to, we're not going to abstract ourselves from the world, but we're going to learn Jesus Christ in the world, right? And in the, in the order of knowing there is going to be really important. To contemplate the world in Jesus Christ is to gain true knowledge of God and true knowledge of the world. To contemplate the world apart from Jesus Christ, isn't to gain true knowledge of the world and not God. It's to gain, it's to forfeit true knowledge of the world and true knowledge of God. Does that make sense? Have you guys ever read A Long Obedience in the Same Direction from Eugene Peterson? It's a really good book. Um, early on, you know, first 20 pages, he says, you know, there's such a thing as factually true lies. Um, and he says, you know, so much of what we do in our world is we say things that are actually factually true about the world and factually true of human existence, except they, they leave out that one thing that's all important. That the world was made by God for God, right? That we bear God's image, that we were made by God for fellowship with God, so on and so forth. So he said, you can, you can say factually true things about human existence, and you can say factually true things about the world, that at the end of the day, leave out everything that's important about the world, and by the way, a way of understanding the world. Does that make sense? So you don't, we, it's, it's not a matter of, uh, um, you know, can we gain true knowledge of the world like this even apart from God? No, you lose them both, you forfeit them both. Only communion with the reality of God and Jesus Christ amidst the reality of the world can fulfill itself in that true knowledge of God, man, and the world. Now, what we're going to talk about here is this. This is the way Scripture says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, right? Really important. One God, one mediator between God and man, not just from God to man, but between, right? From God to man and then from man to God. And that one is the man, the human one, right? It's human mediation, the man, Christ Jesus. So if you guys go on page three, what I want to talk about is like an order of knowing here. How do we come to know the world in Jesus Christ? And what does that look like as the gospel renders intelligible the world to us? Right on the top of that page, Bonhoeffer says, you know, theological thought goes from God to reality, not from reality to God. Another way of saying that is, you and I aren't mediators. Right, we, we, don't, we don't, knowledge of God doesn't move from here to here. Knowledge of God moves from here to here and then out to all things. Does that make sense? <clears throat> theology, says John Baer, theology is the confession of the truth who is Jesus Christ himself 
And this Jesus Christ does not stand subject to any criterion other than himself, the Lord of all history, the Lord of all creation. And so when we think about knowledge of the world, what we want to make sure that we're not doing is, is providing for God, doing God that favor of providing for him the criteria under which he might be the mediator. Does that make sense? The possibilities by which we might be able to say those things about him. He is the one who renders intelligent, intelligible the world. So let's talk about that a little bit. If Jesus Christ is our theology, then he gives theology a starting point that's Christian and an order of knowing that's Christian and that bears itself upon the whole world. If it were the case that knowledge of God or knowledge of the world could be attained from the world or from ourselves, as if, as if we could move from self-analysis to knowledge of God or analysis of the world to knowledge of God, the mediation of Jesus Christ would be superfluous. We'd say there's many, 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 infinitely, infinite number of mediators between God and man. Alexander Schmemann, who I think a lot of you guys know, he says, um, when we don't get this straight and lack of clarity on this, he says, is where the church inadvertently actually aids and abets what he causes, calls the real cause of secularism. Remember what we talked about that? Um, the, the, the pressing down of any claim or anything else that, that transcends just us, right? And our self-styled human flourishing. He says, this is the real cause of it which is ultimately nothing else, he says, but the affirmation of the world's autonomy, of its self-sufficiency in terms of reason and knowledge and action. Wherever Jesus Christ is not recognized as the one mediator between God and man, who then makes all things intelligible, Shmemon says we're aiding and abetting, the church is, we're aiding and abetting the real cause of, the, the, real, the real meaning and the real cause of secularism. So, the world itself, let me say it like this, the world itself, knowledge of God can't move just from perceptions of the world to God. We don't find God first in the world and then um, you know, learn to call him Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no way in which knowledge of God um, outside of the gospel can, can um, be brought to us just by our observations of the world. Does that make sense to you guys? Did you want to say something, Matt? Okay. So, um, and by the way, that's really, really big. Wherever you see a, um, a, a, a Christology or Jesus Christ not being seen first and foremost as, as mediator and knowledge of God and knowledge of the world, what you'll tend to find even in the church is ways in which we start apart from Jesus Christ and try to work our way to him. Does that make sense? Acknowledging he's omega, but not so much that he's alpha, right? He's the perfecter of the faith, but he's not the author of the faith. And so what we'll try to do is um, say that the, you know, the world is so intelligible, right? Uh, that our observations of it not only tell us the meaning of the world, but they actually condition a knowledge of God who's not intelligible. Does that make sense? I think what you find in scripture as a real clear sense of Jesus Christ, Alpha, Omega, creator, redeemer of the world, 
renders the world intelligible. And knowledge of God always moves in that direction, not, not here to there, right? Or I'm sorry, not from the world to God, but from God to the world, always that. Do you guys want to talk about that? I don't, I don't necessarily want to belabor that point. Yeah, Caleb. Modern Christians have a really hard time with that. Really, really hard time with that, yeah. Yeah, so I think one of the big ways that I've seen this just in like church growing up and in Christian circles is when it comes to like apologetics yeah. and evangelism. And, and I remember I was attending, you know, this one apologetics, you know, conference thing. And he was talking about how like, you know, they, they hold up like the laws of logic <clears throat> almost as like this mediator of like, we have to operate or understand God from the point of logic in some ways. Laws of logic, which yeah, are... Yeah, so he, he would say something that, like, God... It was something... I don't want to misquote him, but this is what I got from it. And essentially what he was saying is that, like, God can't operate apart from the laws of logic or something. He was, like, holding logic as, like, this yeah. top medium. And it was just really strange to me at the moment. I was like, wait, there's something wrong with We just this. don't want to talk like that at all. It's yeah. just it's such a non-starter. First of all, I want you guys to think about this. Is there such a thing as, I don't want to go right to laws of logic, but let's think about a couple other things. Is there such a thing as this eternal, abstract, impersonal thing called love, not created by God, right? Exists apart from God, and therefore is, you know, kind of a standard of whether or not God is love? You would never want to talk like that, would you? Now, we do that with lots of stuff. We do that with eternity, right? There's this thing called eternity, and it's just it's kind of running parallel to God's life. And because God, you know, as God sidles up to it, boy, he's that too. And so that's a, that's a criterion by which God is God. We do that with justice. We do that with all kinds of stuff. God is love, right? The very substance of what love is, is who God is. The same could be said of justice. The same could be said of um, um, truth. What we're saying here is Jesus, Jesus Christ is the logic of God and the logic of the cosmos, right? The logic of God's humanity in the world. There's not something, some abstract logic to it so long as, so long as, so long as God comports to that, it's okay for him to be God. That's actually what we're saying there. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> that. That just needs to absolutely go away. Absolutely go away. These are the conditions under which God can be God. Does that make sense? And if, if he adheres to those conditions, we will confer upon him the title of Lord. We never want to talk like that. Now, <clears throat> think about what happens if we do. We start talking about God like he's a Yeti or a Sasquatch or something like that. We start looking for, um, looking at the world to see evidences of God's existence rather than seeing the world in Jesus Christ, which is something quite, quite different. Does that make sense? So think about this. Um, what is the order, if you will, of, of knowing or the order of faith? By the way, they're both the same. Is it the case that we start with the world 
or creation, let's say. We start with creation and we, and we move from creation to creator. Say we do that. What do we call that creator? The world has lots of names, right? Zeus, Lo, Ra, Allah, right? Uh, a nondescript, deistic creator, undifferentiated, you know, whatever. The point is, we, we don't move from creation to creator and then try to find some way to move from creator to, I don't know, father, and then from father to son. The logic of that is all mixed up. We start with the son and we learn to call God father. Having called God father, we start to, we start to be able to make sense in the apostolic witness what it means that the world is gift of God. Does that make sense? Augustine says this, uh, you, if, you're, if you're reading Delighting in the Trinity, he says this to Arius, as a matter of fact. He said, Arius, you do not start with the works of God and learn to call God unoriginate. And you know, what, what Arius is saying is Jesus Christ isn't truly God. You don't, learn, you don't start with the works of God and learn to call God some undifferentiated, unmoved mover, a philosophical construct. You do not do that. You start with the Son and you learn to call God Father father of the son, right? And then you see, by the way, as we were talking about in the last, last time earlier today, then you start to talk about the, individu the, the, the true individuality in that communal being who is father, son, and spirit, known. The father is known relative to the son, and the son is known relative to the father. You start to be able to do that, right? Community and individuality. <clears throat> when moderns... Um, start to get ashamed of this and won't proclaim this, what they tend to do is say, well, we can't, we can't start with Jesus. We can never start with him. We have, to, we have to find another datum point or a starting point somewhere else. And so it'll either be you or it'll be the cosmos or something like this, because Jesus is the one who is contended about. And so we'll try to not argue, you know what I mean by that, confess, not start with Jesus Christ as our confession, but somehow try to conclude with him. He's the conclusion, but he can't be the place of starting. You'll never get to him if you don't start with him. Never get there. If he's not the, if he's not the alpha, he'll never be the omega. <clears throat> and so um, that's one of the ways in which we do this. Now, what, what do we tend to do here? We tend to think, because we live in like a post-enlightenment world, it's like a two-structure, two-tiered world, right? And so we tend to think, well, the things of God are abstract and, you know, the, the noumenal world. Who could know it? We can only be agnostic about that. But you know what we do know? We know this world, right? Because I can touch this world and I can measure it and I can quantify it. And if I can do that, then I can know the meaning of it. Do you think we can? How about something like this? This is something we're all, you know, this, we're up to our eyeballs in it in our culture. Sex. Can you know the meaning of sex by having it, by observing it, by being inundated in it in a hypersexualized culture? No. Does that make sense? And when we talk about even things like this, we tend to talk about um, hygiene and technique. We, 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 um, we avoid the question of meaning because we can't know what that means. We can only know what that means is, as it's revealed to us in the gospel. The same is true of the whole world. It's a big mistake to think if I can quantify, if I can touch, if I can taste, 
I can get at it. We might say something like this. To be beholden to the works of God is no different than being beholden to God. These things are not more accessible to us in terms of their meaning and their intelligibility, and we certainly can't get at them apart from God, and then we certainly can't get from them to God. God has to render them open to us. Does that make sense? That's part of what I mean about um, you know, knowing the world in Jesus Christ, that type of an apology, well, you know I teach. Did you take me for apologetics? Um, that, that's a big deal in modernistic types of apologetics, um, and it starts by right immediately pushing Jesus to the side and bringing in a logic that's alien to the gospel and trying to get to that logic. Can't get from creation to Father, Son, and Spirit. <laughs> that doesn't mean, that's not to say, and we can talk more about that, that's not to say that those aren't decent tools in your toolbox for certain things, it doesn't mean that but it means it'll never do what the gospel does. Just can't do that. Can't do it. Lydia, did you have a question? I'm like halfway down page three here. Because God is not directly known and assessed from the world or for ourselves. Do you hear that word directly? Meaning this, we are not mediators to God. Right? We don't chin scratch or navel gaze our way to God, nor do we you know, go on nature walks and find God there. Having known God, can we enjoy him there? Yes. Is that where God is found? No, no. Because God's not directly known or assessed from the world or from ourselves, Christian theology is incompatible with what we might call natural theology. Natural theology is just non-revelatory theology. Right? trying to cobble together a, a body of divinity from your observations of human life or the world. The notion that God can be merely discovered or merely conceived in an unmediated fashion by our intuitive, experiential, empirical observations of the world. Man, if I could jump up and down and fist pound a little bit, that's so, imp that's so important. Christians are really unclear about that. We're really unclear about that, and it'll undermine the gospel for us. What is certainly true is that God is and gives himself to be known and accessed in the world. That is most certainly true through Jesus Christ, so that Christian theology has a theology of nature that is not the same as, and in fact, categorically different from natural theology. Kierkegaard says natural theology is paganism, and that's exactly what it is. It's trying to read God off the sun and the stars and the moon and without the gospel, which we don't even have a mechanism to not actually therefore just worship the sun and the stars and the moon. Does that make sense to you guys? A theology of nature gives us a rich, rich, rich doctrine of creation and a rich theological, right? Christological perspective on the world. Now the world starts to sing with the love of God. It's the world that Aslan sung into being. And now we can enjoy it as such. Luther would say, famously, Luther would say, if you don't find God in Jesus Christ, you will find him nowhere. But if you find God in Jesus Christ, you will find him everywhere because all of creation throbs with the beauty of Jesus Christ by, for, and through whom all things were made.
Natural theology and Christian theology are different from top to bottom, and the differences are really, really stark, but the primary issue is this. Is Jesus Christ the way and the truth and the life? Is he that? And the way and the truth and the life to what? All things. First his father, but in his father, all things. Carl Barth will say it like this. By the way, that sounds just like Romans 1. When man has tried to read the truth from the sun and the moon and the stars or from himself, the result has been an idol. But when God has been known and then known in the world so that the result is the joyful praise of God in creation, it is because God is to be sought and found in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? God gives himself to be known in the world. Is the world a theater of God's glory? Yes, absolutely. As Jesus Christ shines his light, the light of his life upon, upon the face of the world, the world is alive as a theater of glory to God. Apart from that, we can, we can say, man, the world is immense and complex and beautiful, and by the way, horrible. We can say that too, right? <laughs> because we can't, we, let me say this, because the world is telling two stories at the same time. Creation sings to the glory of God. Creation sings, Romans 8, to the tragedy of a broken cosmos. And we can't naturalistically get at that, right? We can't look at a, look at a tsunami or a famine or a forest fire um, as the world, as creation groans, and then intuitively make observations about God. God has to tell us why the world is, how it is, why it is at all, why it is how it is right now and then how he's bringing it to its fullness. Can I tell you, have you guys ever looked really closely at that, at, at the parable of, uh, uh, or, or the way, not a parable, the way Jesus Christ heals the blind man, the man born blind? It's so cool. It's actually a wonderful kind of, let me just tell you. He finds a man born blind. As he's talking to this man, he just reaches down and pulls up a handful of dirt. Now, what's the significance of the dirt? He is the antitype of Adam, not the archetype. Or he's the archetype, but he's the antitype of Adam. He's the one who's the second Adam. Thorns and thistles, right? And the world rendered futile to Adam in the breaking of the world. Here comes the second Adam. He picks up a handful of dirt right, rendered futile, and he spits in it. <laughs> and he starts to knead it in his hand, right? And he puts it on the man born blind, and he gives light. He takes the earth, subject to futility and brokenness, he molds it in his very hand, and he repurposes it in himself to now being the healing of blindness so that this man gets sight in a creation that he touches and purposes to his redemptive ends. It's so cool, right? Aslan's afoot, the second Adam. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. He does that. When God is sought and found in Jesus Christ, creation is revealed for what it is. The theater where all things, great and small, mountain ranges and little bugs, extraordinary and mundane, by the way, 
Neo-Gnosticism loves endless extraordinariness. Most of life is lived in the mundane, right? The rhythm of the mundane. God illumines the mundane as the theater of his glory. Like, you know, cooking dinner and working on basements like I'm going to do later today and writing emails and things like that. This is the theater of God's glory where he is met. Not just mountaintops, right? Because the Lagos gives Christian theology a distinct logic and a unitary frame of knowing. We can say, in Jesus Christ, we don't have exhaustive knowledge of all things, but all things are rendered. There's a unitary frame of knowing in the Lagos, in whom all things hold together. So that we as the church can live and we can move and have our being wrapped in the truth of this Jesus Christ. And we can be assured that not only do we know the meaning of our existence, but we know the ground and goal of the world. That has everything to do with the way you proclaim the gospel, right? Um, to, to live um, rightly situated in the world, not of the world, but in the world for the life of the world as Jesus Christ is the light of that world. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? So the gospel isn't some piece of irrelevance, right? Jesus has come to save your soul. Um, now get back to you know, the things of the world um, to which he is irrelevant. Jesus Christ actually opens the world to us. Jesus Christ isn't one truth, but the truth who renders intelligible all truth. He is the truth of God, who's the first and ultimate truth of heaven and earth. So, you know, we sometimes say, like, truth is where you find it. All truth is God's truth, so truth is where you find it. That's not nearly enough, right? What we need to say is, how would we know the truth as such? How would we recognize it as such? Does God's truth, when, when, as you're, in your Christian life, does God's truth ever come across to you as extremely strange? It does. How would we know the truth, recognize it as such, and be able to relate it rightly in an intelligible cosmos, apart from the one who is the first truth, and the truth of all truth. It's not enough to say truth is wherever you find it without him being that one in whom all things hold together. You still have it, just a fragmented world. A fragmented world. He gives us that. He does that. So let's talk about, or wait a minute. You guys talk to me. What do you want to say so far? I want to get into what it looks like for his truth and beauty to break open in the world. You guys want to say anything? God's transcendent truth, right? These are, these are what the, the, the church historic has called the transcendent truths of God. The transcendent realities of God, truth, goodness, beauty. They open up in the world through Jesus Christ, through him, as he is bringing together a fractured, fragmented, broken world as the first fruits of is the first fruits of unifying all things in heaven and earth and himself. I'll give you a couple texts there. They're wonderful gospel texts, right? Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. One of the things the Lord is doing in redemption is he's the one who holds all things together in heaven and earth. 
That's his redemptive work in the world to make the world intelligible to us, rather than all things being broken and torn apart. All things are holding together. Jesus Christ, therefore, brings heaven to bear upon earth as he penetrates and permeates the earth with heaven. Think about that, you guys. Heaven comes to bear upon a human womb, right? Heaven comes to bear upon a human womb. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, acts upon us and our humanity in a real particular way. <laughs> a, 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 young, a young woman, a young Israelite woman, he takes up our human being, our humanity, human DNA, up into the life of God, sanctifies it, and brings us on mission with God as collaborators with God and Jesus Christ. He enters, now in this, this part here, he enters a virgin womb. Luke tells us, Luke 23, he enters a virgin tomb. He's doing something utterly unique here. He enters a virgin tomb and he comes forth from that tomb in which no one has ever been laid before. He's doing something unprecedented, utterly unique. He brings heaven to bear upon earth and he brings earth to bear upon heaven in the ascension, right? He binds heaven and earth together and he is making a unified cosmos. Knowing Jesus Christ, as the church does, as the ground and goal of creation, frees us to duly value and truly enjoy earthly realities. To be in the world and not of the world frees us to enjoy the world not to, not to plug our noses in it, to truly enjoy the world as the good gift of God. Does that make sense? Precisely because he's brought heaven to bear upon it and he's recon reconciled and reconciling heaven and earth so that we can enjoy earthly realities not as ends in themselves, but as means that bring us deeper into the Christ reality. Now we're talking about a sacramental cosmos. Now think about that. The things of earth are gifts of God. And what we're, what we're to learn, the art of the Christian life, is to see and savor Jesus Christ in all things, all things good and beautiful, and see and savor all things in Jesus Christ so that even right now, we're having a foretaste of heaven and earth being reconciled in Jesus Christ so that these things are given their proper place. Think about this. If God-given if God means are received by us and then kind of repurposed to ends in themselves so that we, we make ultimate the means and we forget the ends, then we make idols out of those things, right? Like, what can't we make an idol of? <laughs> Leisure, <laughs> work, um, relationships, children, careers, food, sleep, entertainment, the list goes on and on, right? All of these things are meant to be enjoyed in Jesus Christ. And when we see them outside of him, when, they pull, when we pull them from him, then all these things are means in themselves. And by the way, they turn around on us and they're not enjoyable. We come, we come captive to them. Does that make sense to you guys? That's like the, a, almost a classic definition of idolatry. And you know what the pathos of idolatry is, if you don't know better, you just keep going back to that thing in which you find life, right? So if you're an alcoholic, you know, you don't, you don't look at an alcoholic and say, 
wow, you really like beer. Isn't that like the 30th, you, 30th beer you drank today? Wow, you're really thirsty. That's not the point at all, right? It's the point of this is the God that I know, and I am thirsty, by the way, and this last one didn't do it for me, neither did the 20 that came before it. Maybe this one will. You just keep tapping, tapping the pathology of idolatry as you keep tapping that thing which is incapable of life in itself, but you don't know where else to go, so you keep hitting it. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ rids us of that, gifts the world to us, so now we can, we can duly value and truly enjoy earthly realities as they bring us into the Christ reality. Shmiman says it like this. He says, you know, earthly realities are God-given gifts whose God-intended aim is the knowledge of God, which is communion, and that communion which fulfills itself is true knowledge. He says, knowledge of God and therefore knowledge of the world. The therefore is huge. Knowledge of the world and therefore knowledge of God. And so our knowledge of God is being brought into its fullness as we are learning to enjoy the world in Jesus Christ. You see how, how largely that'll play in terms of when we talk about the sacramental nature of the world and the sacraments, right? The gospel sacraments. Now think about that. Is it the case that um, as, we, as we partake in the sacraments of the church, we learn to see the world sacramentally? And conversely, if we say, man, how can I see the world sacramentally if I don't even recognize the sacraments as sacraments, right? <laughs> There's no way we could do it. But as we learn at the Lord's table and at the Lord's font, right, and the bread and the cup, as we learn to enjoy Jesus Christ and see him there, is that the paradigm by which then we go forth into the world, right, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit, to see the world for what it is. God actually gives himself to us in the mundanity of bread and wine and water. Does that make sense? By the way, don't miss the mundanity of it. When you guys go out to dinner, do you usually order water? You do, Lydia? <laughs> Water's mundane, though. You get my point? Bread, mundane. Why does God take the mundane things of the world as vehicles of his own self-communication? To give us access into the sacramental realities of the world. All things great and small, all things not only extraordinary, but mundane. God gives, it, God gives extraordinary gifts through the means of mundane things. It's really glorious. Christian faith is about the divine word being fully human and our bodies being conformed to his, like we talked about. It's about the reconciliation of heaven and earth. The spiritual realities are known physically, materially, in the body and the life of the church. Again, Naturalism, Gnosticism, both of those making oppositional that which God brings together. It's one of the ways in which, have you guys ever heard this before? One of the things sin does is it puts together what God has differentiated and it pulls apart what God's brought together. So the, the spiritual and the, and the material realities of the world, the world that God made, all things, right? Authorities, powers, things invisible, things visible. Um, whereas Gnosticism and materialism make these things contradictory. 
God and Jesus Christ puts those back together for us. They're meant to be together and he puts them back together for us in redemption. Gnosticism and naturalism are not progressive, they're regressive, and they're just flat wrong about reality, flat wrong about it. Spirit and matter are not contradictory at all, they're complementary, so that neither one of them is to be despised and neither one of them is to be totalized. Right? Christian existence cares about bodily realities, not just spiritual realities. Spiritual realities are manifest bodily and stewarded bodily. Um, we don't reduce um, the material world to matter only, right? We, as we say at Raz, right? Matter matters. Why does it matter? Matter matters precisely because the creator and redeemer of matter is revealed and received through matter. He gives himself there, right? And he sanctifies and dignifies the world that he made. Jesus Christ reveals the meaning of matter and the reality of the cosmos as he, unite, as he unites God and man together and upholds all things and is preeminent in all things. Does that make sense to you, you guys? I would hope, like, like the, the punctuation of talking about things like this, because uh, I've been teaching for a while and a lot of times um, Christians, you know, their first blush with this is like, what, you can't read God off the face of the universe? Well, I know I can't be saved apart from Jesus Christ, but I thought I could know God apart from Jesus Christ. Being saved and knowing God are one and the same thing, right? The, what eternal life is, is knowledge of the Father and the one whom he sent. Um, the world, right? We tend to be real fractured and fragmented there, like Caleb, like you said. So, so a lot of modern apologetics as well. How do I find God? Well, look at the world and argue to him. No way. No way. Matter matters. It's glorious because Jesus Christ has given himself through it and sanctified the entire cosmos in himself. He's done that. Knowledge of the world in Jesus Christ safeguards us then from that temptation to devalue earthly realities as trivial or to idolize them as ultimate. We're not called to do either one of those things. Either one of those things is in that, um, that, that, that crucible that pushes us back and forth in our world where, we, where we try to, we're often tempted to totalize or trivialize these things. What this also does, I wanna talk with you about this. It exposes modern secularism for what is, you know, someone like Hans Borsma says, you know, one of the things modernism is, is it tends to be this pernicious, kind of flat earth society. That's what the enlightenment is. Think about this. <clears throat> Modernity has effective, effectively, you know, operatively ripped earth from heaven, right? Is heaven brought to bear upon earth? <clears throat> Most modern thought is not that, excuse me. <clears throat> Most modern thought isn't that. It rips earth from heaven. And then what it does with with earth is it doesn't think about earth <clears throat> primarily as creation, but nature. There's a difference between creation and just nature, right? Creation always connotes creator. Nature doesn't. Nature sometimes speaks of um, that which has no origin, anything intelligible or artistic, and by the way, can really easily be mechanized, right? So if it rips, heaven, it rips earth from heaven, then it tends to press earth down, right? Earth has vertical dimensions, it presses those down. 
And so we don't tend to think about nature as being God-enchanted, for one. We don't tend to think of it about that. Like that, we don't tend to think about nature as having um, divine order. So we tend to think about nature as that, that space where God isn't, if God is at all, um, and that which lacks order that we can now take and repurpose to whatever ends we want. Does that make sense? We do that all over the place. We think that we can rename and repurpose things because they have no divine order, and heaven doesn't, in fact, participate in earth, and we don't have that type of communion. It has what Borsmore go on to say. Now I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> Nature is, uh, you know, continually malleable, so on and so forth. Even our bodies, we tend to think like that. We can redefine and repurpose and then redefine and repurpose all of creation. Does that resonate with you guys? I'd love to hear feedback from you on that. That's one, of the, that's one of the huge places where the gospel just really resonates and touches, touches down in our world. Um, that, in fact, we don't live in a, in a random, meaningless world, but we actually live in one um, that's God-enchanted, right? Not, the, not, not a space where we're haunted by God's absence, but actually God-enchanted. Now we can actually see the world in Jesus Christ and live into the order of the world. What are you thinking, Matt? <laughs> now, let me say this. What this will do for us is let us really think about um, how it is that Jesus Christ, being the Logos of the world, then unmasks what, what Scripture calls the powers. Again, not, not stuff we often talk about, but you'll see over and over in Scripture. Um, um, the powers and principalities of a broken cosmos, right, that constitute the spirit of the age, you know, the world, the flesh, the devil, um, that are embedded right in kind of the, the, the socio-political human structures of the world, right? And we're called to resist those rather than be conformed to them, not be assimilated from them or to them, we can't be assimilated to them, but we have to, even as we live in the world for the world, we have to resist those things. It's actually Jesus Christ who reveals those. He's the one who reveals them. Um, we can be up to our eyeballs in the spirit of the age and we wouldn't know it unless our Lord reveals that to us. It's really easy to think that you're you know, on the right side of history and doing this, that, and the other thing, which is wonderful, and you're actually um, being conformed to and impressed upon by the world. Think about um, the Gospels. When you read the Gospels and you see unclean spirits everywhere, right? And you don't see that to even close to that degree in the Old Testament. You don't see it in epistolary literature or anything like that. You see it in the Gospels. Jesus Christ exposing the unclean spirits, right? When Jesus Christ comes near, he, he exposes things for what they are. Or as he would say, the light shines in the darkness, right? And the darkness being exposed by the light, tagged by the light, presses deeper into the darkness. Except all who love the truth come to the light. Jesus Christ is the one who, who, who exposes that for us. Now think about what that means in terms of gospel proclamation in the world. 
the light of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel exposes that which would not ordinarily be exposed. And we might even be tempted to think it's awesome. I'm getting attacked by a fly up here. Does that make sense to you guys? Let me read you a couple of things. I want to read this to you, and I want to, I'm hoping you guys will talk with me about it. Um, this is a great book, by the way. It's a couple of quotes from a book called um, Christ and the Powers, Hendrikus Burkhoff. It's a little dated, but it's really good, and it's a little gem. It's about 80 pages long. He's Dutch, but he does his, he does his um, advanced schooling in Berlin in, a, in, a, in the Hitler era, and he says this. He says, no one could withhold himself, I'm quoting him, no one could withhold himself without utmost effort, real proactiveness, right? Real, you know, eyes wide open, full heart, resisting. No one could withhold himself without utmost effort from the grasp that these powers had on man's inner and outer life. They acted as if they were ultimate values calling for loyalty as if they were the gods of the cosmos, he says. The only way you can resist those um, is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only exposes them, but shows himself Lord of them. Right? So if you go, by the way, to John's, to John's epistles, how do you test the spirits? What's the criterion for discernment there? Has Jesus Christ come in the flesh as Lord and God? Right? Because there's, there's lots of spirits that aren't the spirit. The Spirit bears witness to that. He will take what is mine and render it to you. He will glorify me. He will come in my name to do my, my bidding. Um, the Spirit of the age, in one way or another, bears witness to its own self-lordship, right? Its own efficacy, its own intent, its own ends, it does that. Jesus Christ brings these things to bear. When you, when, you know, one, I don't mean you guys or me, but when one thinks about evil, for instance, and moderns don't like to talk about that very much, but when one thinks about evil, we tend to, and it's, it's really helpful to think like, yes, I know there's evil in the world. It's over there. It's those people. We don't tend to think like Solzhenitsyn says, right, that it cuts right through our own hearts, <laughs> right? That's where he says, that's, that's where, the, that's where the, the battle line of evil is right there, right in your own chest. So I don't want to put it out there where it's all too easy to um, think about and deal with. Burkhoff says this, brings us right to bear in us. He said, it should not be difficult for us to perceive today in every realm of life these powers. Think about the way Paul talks in Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God, because to, to live in this world, God's world, Right? the world which he is redeeming even now, but that has fallen. To live in God's world, you need armor because the world's not benign. It's not that, right? To, and, and by the way, to press into this world in an explicitly crystal-form way is to call forth the non-benignity of the world. You'll feel it even more, right? Nor should it be difficult for us to perceive today in every realm of life those powers which unify men, he says, unify people, yet in so doing separate them from God. He says the state, aspects of it at least, the state, politics, class, social struggle, national interest, public opinion, accepted morality, 
the ideas of decency, humanity, democracy. Now, on the face of those, you'd say, like, oh, those sound so wicked, right? Well, no, of course not. Have they been baptized in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the point, right? Are they self-styled? These, he says, give unity and direction to many lives. Yet precisely by giving unity and direction, they separate these many lives from the true God. So they let us believe that we found the meaning and existence of life where they, whereas they actually estrange us from the true meaning of life because the true meaning of life is life in the one who is the logos of God and humanity in the world. Jesus Christ exposes the powers. What time do we have? A few minutes. Hey, I think, I think we actually made up a little bit of time. Do you guys want to talk about that? I'd love to talk about that with you, but I know that these conversations are really, really um, tough to, to name. What are, what are some of the things um, relative to the spirit of the age that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ exposes as that which unifies and gives meaning to life, even those things that would say, man, these are all values and good, except they do not conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're actually rebellious actions against his gospel. phrase it. We're called to live in the world, right? To be in the world, but not of the world in terms of being sourced in the world and certainly in terms of being like subservient to the world. So the call is that knowledge of God and Jesus Christ will never let us retreat from the world, right? That's to be unfaithful nor will it ever let us be conformed to the world. But by the renewing of your mind, do not be conformed to the world, right? But be transformed in Jesus Christ and set on mission. You, you at least, you think about some of these things because they're things that we should, we should be talking about theologically. Then how does this come to bear upon some of the, um, the gods of our age? What are the gods of our age that... Um, <laughs> Just, just like Exodus, right, that God actually confronts and God actually bests and God speaks the gospel to and redeems his people from. What are some of the gods of the age that the gospel exposes? That's scary work of the gospel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, brave. Yeah, I don't know where it is. Where is that mic? movements that have just been so prominent are the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. And those are not necessarily things that the gospel exposes, but it's just been so complex for me to yeah. think about those movements because, um, because part of the impetus behind them is something that I can get behind. Of course. Um, and, but, but then their manifestations 
in different spheres are, are sometimes ugly uh-huh. uh, and sometimes really helpful. And, um, and even as you were talking about Gnosticism and naturalism and, and the selfishness of those movements or, or the self-realization that is the, the goal of those uh-huh. ideologies, um, it's just so hard to interact with complex social questions now that sometimes manifest as selfish and sometimes manifest as truly selfless. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, by the way. That's brave. I do that lots in my class. You know, the other day I was saying, um, what's the greatest sin? What's the greatest sin? Think of some of the, the, the great iniquities of our life right now, and what you'll find is 30 people. They don't even want to say it. Right, because it's part of Christians' retreat. Retreat, right? It's, it's the it's the it's the non it's the refusal or the, the the reticence to pick up the prophetic gift and call things what they are, like say it, right? By by just saying what something is, it starts to lose its power. Um, by the way, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the greatest sin? Not to do that. We have a whole different hierarchy in our culture. By the way, that's not all that important at all. We have a whole different hierarchy of of what sin is, and by the way, what sin isn't. Um, And we, we need to sort these things out. I think, Lydia, your point is awesome. These things, getting at that quote, right? These are things that we'd say, man, these movements, um, they promise dignity, right? And they promise freedom from oppression, and they promise love of the other, and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot there, especially on the face of it, looks really good. And then we say, now, wait a minute, (laughs) right? Are they... they, um, are they rooted in that, that lordly, kingly act and address of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you say, oh, shoot, maybe not. We have to be really, really discerning in how we engage, right? And what we can say, you know what? Yes and amen all day long to that. However, to whatever extent you're trying to conscript me to another vision of a kingdom, right? To another gospel. There's lots of gospels in this world, you guys. Lots of them, right? And we want to make sure that we can do that so that we can say, and with wholeheartedness say, by the way, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, right? To issues like sexual brokenness. It's not, I have some really bad news for you and I'm so, I'm going to fall over myself apologizing, but this is really good news for you, who Jesus Christ calls you to be in himself for all manner of broken people, us included, right? Those movements, there's a whole lot that's good in them, a whole lot that's good in them. But you do not, you do not want to say, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to use the gospel to underwrite these things. Can't do that. Or the gospel just kind of comes like a cherry on top to complement those. Have you ever read screw tape letters? Lewis is awesome in this. I think it's chapter like 26. Screw tape says to Wormwood, this is what you want to do with people. Get him to use Christianity as a means to an end. It can be any end. He said, first and foremost, it'll probably just be like self-styled, self-fulfillment. That's good enough. That'll work. But he says, if not that, he said anything. 
And so um, take them in the realm of politics, because moderns are preoccupied with politics. Take them in the realm of politics, and he even uses that, that phrase of social justice. He says, first, convince them that the enemy, our Lord, um, demands justice. Yes. And then he said, once you're there, just tell them that the gospel underwrites that agenda. And that's, that's the point and the, and the real value of the gospel. And he said, done. You're, they're, they're off message, they're off mission. That's what it means to live in the world and not of the world. And you feel that tension. And you say, um, I, am, I am called to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to be that salt and light. I can render unto Caesar willingly what is Caesar's. And I can say, so far as this goes, I can go with you and I want to affirm that. But I cannot be conscripted to another vision of the kingdom, nor can I use the gospel of Jesus to underwrite an agenda that isn't his. That's, that's some of the big tension. We feel it big time, don't we? What do I want to say? I suppose we have to go pretty soon, but do you guys, do you guys feel, um, like palpably feel that tension of being in the world and not of the world? That's the eschatological tension. By the way, I would never want to relieve that. <laughs> um, because there's a sense in which um, what we're tempted to do, we're the new creation, right? We're this eschatological datum point, the new humanity. What the gospel does is it actually calls the old world into mission and into relevance in the new. But we're often tempted to say this is, you know, the old world, the new humanity. What we're often tempted to do is take our new humanity and fold it back over. You know, my, my doctor father used to say, the grand counter miracle, you turn wine back into water. Fold it over onto the world and by the world's agendas and conditioned by the world, you say, how can the church be relevant to your mission and to your kingdom and to your gospels? That's the very thing that we cannot do. And I think that that task is just from top to bottom, it's theological throughout and it's just such Man, it's fun stuff and it's really challenging. It's scary, isn't it? I find it to be really scary. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, we ask for courage. We look, we look and we read Holy Scripture and as we participate, we don't just read as outsiders, as spectators, but we read as those who have been brought up into the mission of Jesus. And we see Paul talking about um, suffering for the gospel. We see Jesus telling Peter, pick up your cross. You'll find life there, right? This won't demean you, and this is the burden that I give you. I will not withhold it from you. You can't carry my cross, but I give you a cross that you cannot refuse. It will, it will not be burdensome to you, but we'll feel it. And so, Lord, we ask you, uh, as we live in this world, that you would continue to master us in a way that doesn't oppress us, but sets it free and relieves from us um, a spirit of timidity, like Timothy tells Paul, the spirit of the, of the Lord. Uh, and the gifts of the Lord is not a spirit of timidity, but one of self-governance and one of due confidence and holy robustness. Lord, we ask that you'd give us um, holy swagger, not um, pretense, and certainly not a spirit of triumphalism, 
but that you would actually give us confidence in you so that in, in fearing you, that kind of fear that's the beginning of all wisdom, that we would not be afraid and certainly not afraid of you. And that in fearing you as we ought to, we don't need to be afraid of <laughs> the world or everything. If we don't fear you, what, what actually happens is we're just afraid of everything. Lord, I pray your release from that. I pray your redemption from that as you bring the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to bear upon us and continue to bring us into from one degree of glory to the next. The reality of our being new creations in Jesus Christ. Do that, we pray. Be glorified in it. Release us from all impediments to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.